The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Ah, yeah, I'm on. There I go. How's everyone doing this morning? Doing well, doing well. Is it sunny outside or is it raining? I didn't notice. It's just cloudy in between, undecided. Okay, it'll rain later, I promise. It's coming. Hey, this morning, my name is Jesse. Actually, every morning, my name is Jesse. Fun fact. I'm the youth pastor, also the young adults pastor here at the Grove Church. Just want to say welcome to you. So glad that you guys are here this morning. Um, it is a little cozy. So as people are coming in, um, you know, maybe you feel led to like scoot in towards the center to create some space. Uh, thank you so much for being you know, flexible with that. Um, and just excited you're all here today. If you're joining us online, just want to say thank you so much for being with us this morning virtually, uh, whether you're at home, um, hopefully not driving because that's dangerous uh, with your coffee whatever you're doing. Thanks for being here. And so today, I have the opportunity to continue on in our series, Love Where You Live. And a little bit about me. Again, I'm a youth pastor here. Uh, My wife's name is Joy. She's pretty incredible. And she's actually not here uh, right now. She'll be here at the 11 Uh, o'clock. Usually, she's on stage singing, doing worship. But she's taken a step back from that for a season because um, we are expecting our baby girl who's due on... This Thursday, and so um, to my knowledge, she's not in labor currently, but (laughs) we'll see what happens. Um, So yeah, anyways, we're about to be parents, super excited for that, and really also just excited about what God is doing in the next generation in our church. And you know, as we're going into this message, I do want to extend honor to our lead pastors, Pastor Nick and Heather, because I think that when it comes to the conversation of how do we love the next generation, uh, for a church to do that well, it does start from the top and make its way down. And so Pastor Nick, I'm so grateful for you, for your investment in my life and in our church, and also for Heather. Uh, and actually, a fun fact, Pastor Nick years ago was my youth pastor, which is fun. And so we're gonna show a picture which you have permission to laugh at. <laughs> So this is when Nick baptized me years ago. Uh, if you notice, it's culturally relevant now. I have, a, I have a Top Gun shirt on. I haven't seen the new one. Um, I've seen the old one, though. At the time of this photo, I had not seen it yet. Uh, my older brother just grew out of it and was like, hey, you want this? I was like, sure, I guess. I also have bleach blonde highlights, uh, braces, a bull cut. Like, there's lots that's right with this picture. And then got, you know, Nick with the, the faux hawk and all that good stuff, rocking the polo shirt. It's pretty awesome. Um, hey, a couple of things as a youth pastor and a young adults pastor that I'm celebrating as we go into this message. Uh, first is our young adults ministry. I don't know if you know this, we do have a young adults ministry that meets here at the church first and third Tuesday of the month. It's for ages 18 through 30. We do have a couple young at hearts that stick around for a couple years after that. Uh, but this, this year, um, this year, this week, we had a barbecue down at Jennings Park. And can I just tell you, there's a great sense of just fun and community with our young adults. And young adults actually turns one year old this month. It wasn't a ministry that we had for a while. A lot of the credit for that goes to Pastor Aaron uh, for dreaming that up and starting it um, and then having me take it over because he's my boss. So yes, (laughs) yes, sir. Um, So there's that. Uh, The next thing I'm celebrating, this picture was taken at our youth ministry, Grove Youth, this past week. And what's cool about this, one, there's students worshiping. Just ignore the one that's texting in the front. 
But what's awesome about this picture is this is the first time in our time as youth pastors uh, that we've had a fully student-led team with no adults on the stage with them helping or coaching. And so they led their peers this week. That's worth celebrating. Really exciting. And so... Um, my wife, Joy, she's really done an incredible job with building them up and developing the next generation. I tell our students all the time, I don't believe that you're the future of the church. I believe that you are the church. And so seeing them start walking that out now is really cool. Uh, hey, today we're talking about uh, the next generation. Uh, specifically, how do we love the next generation? And as I was prepping for this message and I thought through the idea of generations, it's interesting that things are constantly changing over time across generations. I think back to when I got my very first cell phone. Anyone remember your first cell phone? Yes. Um, probably lots of us were different ages around the time. Anyone remember like, you know, when it was like the big brick like this? Like, you know, it doubles as like a self-defense weapon. Just like, just take a shot at somebody. But I remember my very first phone was this little T-Mobile flip phone, okay? It had the T9 texting. Anyone still have a flip phone in the house? Okay, there are some hands. I don't know how they still, I thought those were all shut off by now, but they're still, still working. My very first phone though, T-Mobile flip phone. And for all of the parents where you have teenagers who have their own phone, I want you to imagine for a second that one, they have a flip phone that doesn't have like um, any kind of games or anything like that. The pictures are super grainy. There's no Snapchat, none of that is real yet. And they also, yes, uh, they also have to share the phone with their siblings. Imagine the chaos in your household if all of your kids had to share one little rock, right, as like their phone. Um, but I remember that was my first phone. And it's crazy for me because when I look at generations that are moving up, you know, I see how you know, they all typically have a phone of some kind. Uh, the age they get phones is getting younger and younger. And for me, that's just, that's pretty new. Um, and for some people in this room, the fact that I got a flip phone in junior high was probably pretty new for you too. And it's just the nature of the fact that generations change over time. And the things that matter to each generation, the things that mark each generation are always different. And for all of us, if we're to be completely honest, uh, we would say that probably relating to younger generations becomes more challenging with every year that goes by. And as a youth pastor, this has even been true for me because I feel like almost every few months they have a new word that means something else. <laughs> and I know I really dated myself by saying that. I remember when lit was a thing. Um, uh, most recently, you know, sheesh or yeet or lots of other words. Um, I'm still not sure what the last one means, but figuring it out as we go. Um, but what's really interesting, as generations change, I feel like they're always changing quickly. And if you don't know this, the new generation of sixth graders coming up is no longer Generation Z. Now, some people will debate that by a couple years, but the new generation coming up is actually what we're calling Generation Alpha. So basically, the alphabet has reset. We're starting back at the beginning. Uh, so the one after them will be boomers again, because it starts with a B. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. It's a bad joke, but I tried. Dad jokes, yes. Getting, I'm practicing. And so anyways, we see that generations change. Uh, this next generation will be markedly different than Generation Z. What's true about generations, though, is that it's easy to sort of complain about a generation that's coming after you. And that's true for every single generation. 
And what I think for many of us, the challenge is going to be is not developing what I call a glass half empty mentality when we think about the next generation. When we think about today's young people, whether it's kids or junior hires or high schoolers, whatever it is, not developing a glass half empty mentality. You might be developing a glass half empty mentality if you ever catch yourself saying some of these things. Number one, I just don't understand them. I just, I just don't get it. As a youth pastor, I still have a lot of those moments, just to be honest. Like, why, why did you lick a table? You didn't have to do that, but <laughs> here we are. I wish I was making that up, by the way, but... Another one, uh, they're too lazy. Uh, and this, as a millennial too, you know, I've heard that definitely said about my generation. Uh, still believe I'm gonna change the world and show up to work late. Just kidding. Um, maybe also too, something you say is, you know, they're glued to their phones. Uh, the more time goes by, the more that's becoming a societal thing, but especially with younger generations, that is the case. Uh, maybe it's as simple as I don't like their music, I don't like the shows they're into, uh, whatever that could look like for you. You see, for the next generation, uh, we have to understand that sometimes it can be hard to love what we don't fully understand. And when it comes to young people, this is especially true. And I think about my first year of marriage. And what's interesting is this whole idea of like, it's hard to love what you don't fully understand sort of comes into play. And I remember one of Joy and I's very first arguments. And it had everything to do uh, with this little mug that I had. I had gotten it from a mentor of mine in college. It had a mustache guard on it. So if you didn't want to get your mustache in your coffee, which I don't know who has that kind of mustache, but... Uh, respect for you. Uh, but I remember though, I had this mug and you couldn't actually drink out of it because when you put tea or coffee in it that was hot, uh, the entire handle would superheat for whatever reason and actually burn your hands. So it was kind of pointless. And so in my mind as a bachelor, this is an astute piece of art for decoration. <laughs> so I bring this into my marriage <laughs> And I still remember Joy walking out of our bedroom and I had set it out on a shelf because I had noticed I had put this out and it's gone now. Oh, it's in the cupboard, it doesn't belong there. And so I set it out and I remember uh, Joy came out and she saw it sitting there and she was like, what is that doing there? It's like, well, what do you mean? Your mug, why is, it, why is it on that shelf or table, whatever it was? And I was like, well, it's a decoration. She says, that? <laughs> no, it's not. And you can fill in the blank on what happens beyond that point. But the reason I share this though is that for Joy and I, because we loved each other, we still do, because we love each other, <laughs> we pushed through that. We tried to seek common ground and understanding. Uh, the mug is now stored somewhere, not on display. <laughs> the ground is very common, it's exciting. <clears throat> but when it comes to the next generation, we don't always understand how they operate or why certain things happen the way that they do. But as people, what we should do, especially as Christ followers, is we need to strive to understand what it means to love the next generation. Even when we don't necessarily have all the answers, what can we practically begin to do? So the question I want us to ponder today is what does it look like to love the next generation? My goal today is not to condemn anyone in this room. I'm not trying to point fingers and say, hey, I need to convince you that you need to love young people. I'm pretty sure that most of us in this room have that understood. But what I do want to do, my goal for today is to help guide us through this conversation of what it looks like to love the next generation. If you're looking for a place to land in scripture, we'll actually be in Isaiah chapter 39 today. 
And simply uh, what this passage is, it's one chapter, it's only eight verses. And so we're gonna go ahead and read this together, then we'll pray. But here's what it says. Soon after this, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, say that three times fast. <laughs> I dare you. If you're online, type it three times fast, I guess. But king of Babylon sent Hezekiah his best wishes and a gift. He heard that Hezekiah had been very sick and that he had recovered. Hezekiah was delighted with the Babylonian envoys and showed them everything in his treasure houses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the aromatic oils. He also took them to see his armory and showed them everything in his royal treasuries. There was nothing in his palace or kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked him, what did those men want? Where were they from? Hezekiah replied, they came from the distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? Asked Isaiah. I get like being interrogated by my mom vibes when I'm reading this. Like, who is that you're hanging out with, huh? What are they doing? Anyway, go back to, sorry, squirrel moment. They saw everything, Hezekiah replied. I showed them everything I own, all my royal treasuries. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord of heaven's armies. The time is coming when everything in your palace all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. And then verse eight, if you're taking notes or following along your Bible, I'd encourage you underline this. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message you have given me from the Lord is good. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for an opportunity to have this conversation, Lord, about what it looks like to love the next generation. God, I thank you that as we wrestle through this conversation, God, that I believe even in this moment, Lord, you're gonna remind us of names of young people, God, who need your love. God, whether it is a, a sibling, a child, someone we know from our place of employment or just from the community, God, I pray that you would help us to be inspired, Lord, that you would lead us to what it looks like to love young people. God, I pray, Lord, that even if we look at the next generation, God, and say, I'm not fully sure what to do or how to move forward, God, remind us today, God, that your love is the answer. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us, you would lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here's some helpful context on this story. I think when we answer the question of what it looks like to love the next generation, a really helpful starting point is often what it does not look like to love the next generation. What we see in the story of Hezekiah is something that is a mentality that none of us as followers of Jesus should have. Some context about Hezekiah. Number one, Hezekiah allows Babylon to see the nation of Israel. This includes their armories, so everything they have stored up for their military, their treasuries, their storehouses, their resources, the palace. All of it, Hezekiah allows the Babylonians to come and tour, to take inventory of everything that he has. If you're familiar with the story, the Babylonians are the nation of people who will one day come back and capture the Israelites, lead them into exile, plunder their nation, and that story is lined out in scripture. This prophecy that Isaiah provides for us winds up coming true. When, once Hezekiah has done this, once he's shown them around, Isaiah goes and delivers a word from the Lord because of what has happened. It's a warning, it's a message of what's coming for the next generation. 
And it's interesting that Hezekiah's response. Hezekiah says, what you have said is good because inside he was thinking, at least there will be peace and security for me. If you look in the prior chapters, you see some of Hezekiah's story as king. Number one, the Israelites were at war with the Assyrian people before this happens. And God shows up in a miraculous way and delivers them. He defeats the Assyrian army. The Israelites are credited with the victory. Well, God is credited, but you know, they have God on their side. This all happens. And it's interesting because this incredible miracle happens. Right after this, Hezekiah becomes deathly ill. And when Hezekiah is ill and on his deathbed, Isaiah the prophet again comes to him and says, hey, you're not gonna recover from this. He has such great words of encouragement. Doesn't that Isaiah guy? <laughs> Isn't he great? But he shows up and says, you're not gonna recover. Isaiah's, Hezekiah's response in that moment then isn't to just resign himself and say, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna die. But no, he cries out to God. He weeps bitterly. He says, God, would you heal me? Would you take this sickness? Would you extend my life? And that's a paraphrase, but God essentially responds, grants his request, heals him from the illness and extends his life by another 15 years. Hezekiah has seen and experienced all these miracles. And it's really interesting because even after everything God has brought him through, a neighboring nation, a neighboring empire comes and sees everything that they have. And Hezekiah as the king, the protector and the guardian and leader of his people allows them to see everything. Why would a king of a nation take another nation and say, hey, yeah, here's all of our, our riches, our weapons, here's where everything is. I believe it's because Hezekiah had become complacent. He makes again that telling statement, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Even though he's experienced God's blessing, God's healing, he's content with this present. You see, I believe that Hezekiah became complacent for one main reason. Hezekiah was content with his present when he should have been discontent for the future. Hezekiah had become content with his life being good, with himself experiencing the blessing of God. So much so that when he heard about what was coming for the next generation, he doesn't repent, he doesn't do any of that. But instead, he says, what you have said is good. When he himself was in danger, how does Hezekiah respond? He cries out to God, he prays, he weeps bitterly, and God responds. And yet when he hears this message about the next generation, Hezekiah's response is not to pray, it's not to weep, it's not to grieve, but instead Hezekiah's response is to be focused on himself, his own contentment, and his own complacency with his life. Hezekiah had become content with his own interests, even when he received a sobering word for the next generation. My prayer for us today as the people of God, as the church, is that we would not be people who look at the next generation and say, at least things were good in my lifetime. I've experienced God in incredible ways. I've had stories of healing. I remember moments where I've experienced his presence and first encountered his love. We can't be people who walk through these moments and then keep it to ourselves. There is a generation that is gradually more so falling off after high school and leaving the church in their faith. And the time in that moment is not to do what Hezekiah said and to abdicate responsibility or to become complacent. But the moment for us means that we need to understand that this is a moment of urgency, to lean into the next generation, to be willing to love them. 
As a youth pastor, I've had conversations with people and I think of one story, especially at my last church where I was doing youth ministry. And the guy I was talking to, though well-meaning, came up to me. He was like, oh, so you're a youth pastor, right? And I said, yeah, that's correct. I am a youth pastor. And I remember in that moment, he said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that you do that. I could never be a youth pastor. Man, especially the middle schoolers, I can't handle it. And I remember in that moment, you know, you kind of smile and say, okay, like, thank you. Um, But what is sad for me as a youth pastor, though, is that people can't have that mentality with the next generation. It's not just the role of a youth pastor or a teacher or a volunteer or someone else to fully raise a kid to love Jesus, but it takes all of us together as the body of Christ to lead and love them well. As us, as the church, I believe that what we have to do in these moments is not to say, I could never do that, but to say, God, can you use me in that? My prayer for us today as a church is that God would begin to awaken within us what I like to refer to as a holy discontent. A holy discontent meaning it's something that's stirred up within us by God something that is a passion for us, that when we look at the next generation, when we see the way things are trending in life and in culture, that we would not be people who stand on the sidelines. It's interesting with the Babylonians. Again, later they come back and they conquest the nation of Israel. They conquer them. And what's interesting in that story is, yes, they come to pay respects to Hezekiah, but they also had ulterior motives. You see, the Babylonians and the Assyrians were mortal enemies. And when the Assyrians were defeated, the Babylonians thought, hey, the Israelites pulled this off. Like, that's good for our own self-interest. In our culture, we have to remember that there's a lot of things that might seem good. Things that might seem like, okay, like they seem to have the best intentions. But oftentimes there's a lot of influences in our culture that are vying for the attention of our young people that do not actually have their best interests in mind, but have ulterior motives. As the church, it is on us to be willing to say, I may not have all of the answers in these moments. I may not fully understand what to do, but I know that God loves me and I want them to experience that same love. I think back to a story from my youth ministry days when I was in Port Orchard. And it was after a youth night. And I remember walking out of our youth room into our church's main auditorium. And they had these balconies that were hallways with classrooms on the side where the children's ministry would meet. And they had these big metal safety railings that went down the side. And I remember walking out there one night and seeing three of my high school boys all hanging from the railing down into the auditorium. (laughs) Isn't this so fun? What if we die? And I remember walking out there And looking at them, and you know what I didn't do in the moment? I didn't like walk out and be like, (laughs) they'll figure it out. But no, in that moment, I remember yelling like, dude, like, what are you doing? Get down from there. Like, you could literally die. Like, there's chairs beneath you. Like, this is not, this is not good. For you and I, when we think about the next generation, so often I think the temptation that we feel is, man, I see the path they're going. I see the way that culture is trending. I hear that they're falling away after high school. I hear all these things. And yet sometimes I think our tendency is to try to turn around and to say, oh, they'll figure it out. They'll figure out a solution. But in the reality, we as God's people need to be willing to lean in and to love them. Some examples of what we see students going through today. Again, we've referenced a couple of times students leaving their faith after high school. Academics in our community are a big struggle. It's why we do tutoring. 
And can I tell you that when you have those moments in a tutoring conversation where yes, you're helping with school and you're guiding them along, you're also building a relationship. And you begin to get a sense of, man, these kids are like really struggling, not only academically, but also on a personal level. And it's so cool to see tutors come alongside them and build relationship and say, yes, I'm gonna help you, but I'm also gonna care about you. We see students who are dealing with addiction to drugs and alcohol. We see anxiety and depression in our young people only accelerating with every year that goes by. We have issues of gun violence in our nation, which our kids are having to navigate conversations when they go to school about it throughout the week. There's a lot of big problems and issues that are legitimately concerning that we see when we look at the world around us. And I think for us today, it can be easy to look at these problems and to say, man, that is a problem. That is overwhelming. God, when I see all these different things going on in the world, if I'm honest, I don't fully know what to do. And so what we turn to, right, is social media. We turn to politicians. We turn to all these other areas of life where we think like, well, maybe if we go this route, then they'll be able to help and figure out a solution. But as followers of Jesus, what if the solution wasn't so complicated? What if it was actually a little more simple than we make it out to be? You know, a few weeks ago, I love that Pastor Nick, um, he shared a post, and this was after the Uvalde uh, school shooting that happened down in Texas recently. And the post was written by a dad who I believe is a pastor, his name's Austin Fisher. And he writes this post about how he learned of the shooting that had happened as he's driving, going on vacation with his boys to Colorado. And as he's driving along, he hears about this news and he begins to wrestle with this tension of how do I tell my kids about this? He expresses the sentiment that like everyone else, when these tragic things happen, he wants to have a solution. He wants to have a fix for the problem. And I think all of us feel that drive right within us because we see things that are wrong. But for him and himself, he comes to the place where he says, there's no one big solution that I myself as a man can do. But what I can do is I can love my boys well. I can teach them what it means to follow Jesus. I can teach them how to be a good, upstanding member of society who loves Jesus. Because so often when we see these tragedies happen, it's often committed by young men who have absent fathers or uninvolved fathers in their life. And what would it look like for us as the church to say, we're going to lean into the next generation? Those kids who maybe don't have an involved dad, what would it look like to say, hey, we're gonna love them. We're gonna come alongside them even if we're not directly the parent. In that post, he shares a quote by Wendell Berry. And the quote says this, a couple who make a good marriage and raise healthy, morally competent children are serving the world's future more directly and surely than any political leader, though they never utter a public word even broadening this beyond just parents. I think that for many of us as followers of Jesus who have experienced his grace and his hope and his love and the transformation in our hearts, I think for us, when we think about, oh, is there a big solution? I think it starts small. I think it begins with loving the young people that are within our circle of influence saying, I may not have all the answers, but what I do have is God's love that is embodied in me, and I'm going to live it out in my actions and how I serve and in how I love. What I love about being a youth pastor 
is I get to lead a team of people who are so consistently involved in the lives of students, who are passionate about them, who care about the things that they go through, who understand that their role is not necessarily to parent, but rather it is to come alongside parents and families in the faith development of their children. Some leaders I think of when I go through this conversation, I think of a Greg and Emily Heinrichs who are actually sitting right over here. What I love about Greg and Emily is they've been serving in youth ministry since long before I was the youth pastor, starting with Pastor Aaron, right? Back in, no? Andrew? Farther? Andrew, then. Oh, okay, yes. Okay, cool, great. Yes, we figured it out. <laughs> but what I love about Greg and Emily is that they've been serving long enough to see the fruit of their labor. They have students from years ago who they still have relationship with, who they still talk to, who I believe still come over for dinner sometimes. They have these relationships that they've built over time that comes with continued faithfulness. I think about um, a Jordan Huntley, who I don't know if he's in here right now, but Jordan Huntley is one of those guys in a youth ministry setting who reaches kids that may not dial in and connect well if it wasn't for Jordan. And what I mean by that is when you walk into a youth gathering and maybe you've seen it as a parent and there's teenagers running around and things are crazy and fun and all that going on, if you're more of an introverted kid, you can feel overwhelmed by that. But Jordan has the eyes to see those kids who might struggle with that initial connection. And he has a following of kids who when they show up, they look for him. Why? Because they know he loves and he cares. I think about a Josh Neisinger. And Josh not only is a teacher in our school district, Josh also was playing keys this morning, uh, but he also serves in tutoring on a weekly basis on Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. And what I love about Josh is that he goes from teaching math all day to helping students understand math when they get out of school. I imagine how that conversation goes, right? Like kid walks in, okay, I have all this math homework for Mr. Neisinger. Oh, hi, Mr. Neisinger. <laughs> Funny that you're here. I'll get it done, I promise. That has to be a fun conversation that happens. Um, but here's what I love about these youth leaders, about these tutors, about these people who are invested in next generation. And there's others who are in this room um, who I wish I could talk about all of you. We just don't have time. What I love about all of these people is none of them claim to have the answer to everything that happens in the life of a student. There are still situations where sometimes all you can do is what's called a ministry of presence and just be there and love. But what they do have is the love of Jesus. What they do have is the hope they've experienced. And when they interact with a young person, it's not just solving a math problem. It's not just telling them, hey, get off the roof. It's not just all these other things. But it's saying, hey, I'm gonna be present in your life. I'm gonna love you. I don't necessarily have all the answers for what you're going through, but I'm gonna be present with you. See, what many of us need to be encouraged with today is that you can be sure of how you love when you're unsure of what to do. You see, so often we get caught up on what is the solution to this problem? What if for us as followers of Jesus, the solution was to start small and to love the young people who are in our circle of influence? That could be through a youth ministry setting, that could be through Grove Kids, that could be through volunteering in the community, whether it's out of school or the Boys and Girls Club or whatever, that could be. What would it look like for us to be sure of how we love when we're unsure of what to do? A question people keep asking me as we approach the birth of our daughter is, so are you ready? <laughs> Can I just be honest for a second? I'll give you all the answer right now. I don't know. 
I don't really know how to answer it anymore. Because I think the question is a little loaded. They know you're not ready when they ask, right? <laughs> and everyone's well-intentioned. Like, so I'm not mad, but like, you know, it's just that thing. And when I think about it, though, my daughter's going to show up regardless of if I'm ready. I'm going to have the opportunity to raise her, to love her, to care about her, to navigate life's challenges. All the parents can say, amen. It keeps going throughout their life. And so what I am committed to, though, is consistently showing up, just saying, I'm going to love my daughter well. There's not going to be a lot of sleep out first. I know. Pray for me. Bring coffee. That's great. <laughs> and for joy. I guess that's good, too. <laughs> But what I am committed to is loving her, is being present in her life. And I think for today's young people, the solution is pretty similar. It's showing up. It's being present. It's saying, I don't know what the future holds for your life, but through it all, I'm going to be here. I'm your biggest fan. Kara Powell is a, sort of a guru in the youth ministry realm of things. And she, in partnership with a guy named Dr. Chap Clark, uh, they write uh, this theory about serving young people called the five to one ratio. Typically in a youth ministry setting, uh, maybe, you know, even on like field trips or whatever in like other organizations, you know, it's really good to have a ratio of one adult for every five kids. And the premise of this conversation is what if we flipped the ratio? What if instead of one adult for every five kids, we had five caring adults invested in the life of every child? What better place for that to happen than in the church? And what I'm not saying is that all of you have to come be youth leaders. So take a, take a, take a deep breath. As Emily said, it's okay if you want to, we can talk. But what it does mean is that for you and I, we have to have a little bit of a paradigm shift in our mind. We have to say, you know, rather than just saying, man, they have, you know, a youth pastor or a teacher or a parent um, who really cares about them, you know, even if they're not my kid, I'm going to lean in and I'm going to help love them to Jesus and show them the hope that I have. A quote from the book that Kara Powell writes is called Sticky Faith. It's from page 79. She writes, according to one study, teens who have five or more caring adults in their life who were invested them during the ages of five through 18 were less likely to leave the church after high school. That's a powerful telling statement for you and I. What if your investment in the life of a student meant that they had a greater likelihood of following Jesus for the rest of their life? I think there's a few practical things we can do to start taking steps. Number one, I wanna to talk to parents for a second. I'm about to learn in a few days how hard it is to be a parent. And as a youth pastor, I, I sincerely view myself as a partner with you. I want to help. I want to support. All of our youth leaders want to do the same thing. Because from stories that I hear, man, parenting is challenging. And I know I'm going to understand on a whole new level pretty soon here. But for parents, I would encourage you to lean into support that's there. I love that as a church, we're gearing up for life groups this fall. And the whole heart is to create opportunities for people to connect, for greater discipleship, to build relationship. And there are families in the church where maybe you feel like you're doing parenting alone. They're trying to figure out, how do I raise my teenager through all these different things? What would it look like for you to say, this fall, I'm going to dial in to a life group? Maybe some of you even feel led to lead a life group. I don't know what it looks like for you, but would you lean in to a web of support for your family? The next thing is to find a place to serve. You see, tutoring is beginning to wind down for the summer, but it is going to be back in the fall. And we're hoping that it's even better that it reaches more students than it even has currently. But can I tell you that it's more than just the academic help? It's also a great chance to instill hope 
of Jesus in the life of, our, of young people in our community. And what I think of a really cool story from just a couple weeks ago. I was on campus at Marysville Pilchuck. It was their brand new incoming freshman event. And I remember lots of students coming up to say hi to me because I'm really cool. I also had a lot of Gatorade, so that probably helped. But I remember these students are coming up and mingling, and there was one kid who I knew from tutoring. And I remember that she's talking to a group of friends. And to my knowledge, I've never seen her at a youth night. I think her experience has just been with tutoring. But at one point, she pointed over and said to her friends, hey, that's my youth pastor. And I remember being struck in that moment with the simple fact that, man, sometimes I think we can like simplify it to say, man, if I'm gonna be a youth pastor or if I'm gonna love a young person, it has to be within a ministry setting. But because we have a team of people who consistently care, who consistently show up, who consistently offer academic support, she identified me in that moment, and I'm sure our tutors too, as people who are in her corner, as people who love her, who are there to support her, regardless of what happens. Maybe for you, tutoring is something you wanna jump in with. Maybe dialing in with serving in Grove Kids and investing in the younger generation from a really young age. Maybe it is getting involved on a Wednesday night in the lives of students. I don't know what it looks like for you, but if you are at all interested, you can go to the church website. There's a page that says, find your team. You can even just learn more there about what it looks like. But there's so many opportunities. Another opportunity could even simply be saying, hey, I wanna get involved on school campuses. I wanna partner with other organizations to help volunteer and serve our students and be a light into a place that is so often dark. The last thing is simply get to know the young people in your church family. This morning, you'll probably see like the pink tags. There are students who are out there greeting and serving. They're in the announcement video today. Uh, we have students that are involved in the life of our church. And what's so cool is also today, we're gonna to honor and celebrate our graduates. When you see a student here today, would you introduce yourself? Would you say hi to them? Would you begin to even organically build a relationship and help them feel that they're cared about, that they're loved, that they're seen? Something I think through for our leaders is be the kind of youth leader that you needed when you were a teenager. Today, what would it look like for you to be the kind of adult that you needed as a student? The challenger thing for all of us is to commit to being one of the five adults invested in the life of a kid. I can think back to five or six key people in my life who were invested in me consistently. And I really attribute a lot of that to the fact that I'm still following Jesus is because of their investment. Would you commit to being one of the five? I'm gonna pray. God, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to love the next generation. God, I thank you that uh, we don't have to do this alone, but God, we have you with us. God, I thank you that we don't have to have all the answers for life's big problems and things we see in culture, but God, we carry the simple answer and that is the hope and the love of Jesus. God, I pray that you would inspire us right now, God, to love the young people well in our community that we know. God, would you create intentional moments and opportunities for us to lean in and to serve. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.